Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, we've been on hiatus for a little while. We're back. We are back. We're, we're back, heading into the end of 2019, and we are just, you know, we're start. We're getting ready to churn out content again. It's it's so it's so good to uh, to hear your voice again. Um, you know what? Written like, as it may be, with remnants <laughs> of some foreign invader, like I feel like congested. Oh, uh, you've got something. Maybe our eh? listeners can't hear it, but I, I notice it in my throat. Well, I I was. I'm like a, I'm like a male Kathleen Turner. I had (laughs) don't make me laugh because then I cough because I'm still getting over getting over um, I find Kathleen so attractive still in her old age (laughs) she's fantastic I have no comeback to that yeah I mean that movie that once bitten uh, uh, where Jim Carrey's like gets bitten as a vampire and she's the vampire ah such a good film 80s not a great, great film, but it's great for comedic Kathleen Turner. Film. A lot has happened in film since we've last year. Yeah. You know, by the way, I'm happy that we took a bit of a break. Yeah, we're rejuvenating it. Our listeners yeah, totally. may or may not be happy. No, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people are pissed off, but I think that there's, you know, there is a, um, I, I, we, we don't recognize enough in modern life and society, um, the seasonality of life. You know, like there really is, you know, especially in northern climates, like I'm in the UK, you're in you're in Philadelphia, right? I mean, there are four distinct seasons, and and the seasonality of nature it it it, it affects mood, it affects uh, energy levels, it kind of affects what we're thinking about. You know, the novelist Barbara Kingsolver. Mm-hmm, yeah, she spent a year of her life with her family just eating what they could get seasonally. So. So she didn't go to the supermarket and get strawberries in winter or whatever. So hmm. she ate only what could be locally grown seasonally. It's a very interesting exercise because you begin to realize like hmm. that things, you know, pre-modern life where things are not, you wait for a peach or a strawberry or. And also, and also you get good at preserving stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you need a lot of potatoes and leeks and things like that in the winter. Oh, I remember my grandmother on the farm. I mean, the, the potato cellar, which you kind of fill up at the end of the summer when you heal all the potatoes and then, and then you kind of dwindle the supply and then, you know, the, you, you get like this bumper crop of strawberries and you make strawberry jam or you preserve the raspberries or whatever. And you're kind of eating through those during the winter. Yeah. So, but anyway, I mean, like I, you know, summer for me was, was really, uh, you know, running around, uh, all over the place. It was, it was, it was perform. It was give, it was, Spend, spend, spend um, intellectually, and uh, and I didn't have much time for for you know deep reflection. Uh, but that's n- interesting because most people that summer <laughs> is oftentimes oftentimes their their reflection time. Hmm. They're sort of down, especially if you're academic or something like that. If you're academic, usually, but summer was your on time. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, and, and unexpected things come up. Like I was invited to give a TED talk in in Mumbai in September. Uh, but the invitation came in June and, uh, you know, for anyone who's given like a, a TED talk that is sort of run from sort of TED proper, the ringer that they put you through, um, 
it is an intensive process to um you know get through these multiple rounds of of drafting what you want your talk to be and uh you know attending trainings and um giving um like you know basically uh mock performances where you then get evaluation afterwards and it was just this intent like wow. it never stopped for about you know 12 weeks basically did they, how did they wine and dine you when you got there uh yeah i mean it was it was uh, so that specifically that was in september late september so um they they flew all of us who were speaking there were about 12 of us uh so they flew us all to mumbai uh, a couple of days before and um kind of the the first day was pretty relaxed there was uh, a kind of uh, workshop with some of their um kind of professional people uh kind of you know on on like uh um you know, we, we, we practiced like opening our talk and, and, and explaining it to one another and, 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 uh, finding, finding our conversational voice, uh, rather than a kind of stage performance voice. Was there anybody you couldn't stand in that group? You probably can't say that. They might <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't say that. They might listen to the podcast, but you know, there was, there was a great mix of people. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, all really fascinating, had something interesting to say, obviously had some idea worth spreading. Um, but but there wasn't really much before. Like there was that there was that workshop. There was kind of like an optional dinner. Um, but but really, they kind of understood that most people who are coming to this are going to be pretty focused on uh, their performance. Um, and so they kind of gave us the the time and space to do whatever we needed to do to get our mind right to to give that performance. And then afterwards, um, there was pretty pretty big party. Um, nice. Yeah yeah, it was good times. It was good times. That's awesome. Um, so, and that airs this week, right? Uh, depending when you're listening to this, uh, Sunday, November 17th is when it drops on Ted.com. Three days away. Three days away from when we're recording this. Yeah. So that's exciting. We could have a watch party on Facebook. You know, you can do that. (laughs) Should we? Oh my God. We should have a watch party. That would be kind of embarrassing. I think. I think it'd be awesome. Seeing yourself and hearing yourself talk is a, is a special form of torture. Yeah. I I suppose that is a kind of, (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, yeah. so so summer, and then of course, you know, the lead up to uh, Basecamp London um, was uh, was a lot of work as well, and that just uh, that just came to pass on the kind of what third uh, and fourth of November. So you know, all of my all of my real time and energy to just step back and reflect with you was was kind of stolen by other people over the sorry about that man yeah. don't they understand and then Brigitte. and then and then stolen are by you still in the e- are you are you out of the eu now <laughs> or not it is hard to keep up so I, I what's going on i don't know like i mean i i know that it's like there was a something at the end of october where there was a hold with boris johnson on the, the, the is it still open-ended right now it's still kind of open-ended so what's happening now is that there is going to be a um, so so they've received another extension from from the EU and there's going to be a British general election uh, just before Christmas in mid December and so that's kind of like the results of that election are probably going to determine whether Brexit is or is not going to happen uh, if uh, the current government under the UK Boris Johnson like the wins, terrible, terrible students. Can I have another extension? Can I have another extension? <laughs> My homework's almost done. Can I have another extension? Yeah, that's true. Eh? 
Oh my God. But Jer- so Jeremy Corbyn, he he would be prime prime minister of labor once. Well, so I mean, so that w- what the pundits are looking at is basically you've got so Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, they're kind of representing the Brexit vote now, right? I mean, if they win government, then that's essentially a kind of endorsement of the original referendum result to say, okay, well then, you know, people have voted the government that is saying we want to take us out of the EU. So that's it's clearly we've all got to make that happen. Um, the thing about uh, Labour is that uh, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't hasn't offered a clear position on what Labour's view of Brexit is. So, so, so you know, you've got one party, Conservatives, who are saying clearly, "Vote for us, and we are leaving." And then you've got Labour, which should be as kind of the big opposition party. They should be presenting the clear alternative: "Vote for us, and we are staying." But there are so many supporters of labor and especially supporters of jeremy corbyn who don't want to stay in the eu that he as a leader is unwilling to take that position so yeah the populist thing it's weird because like you have this is what's interesting you have people on the left in the united states who are running for president like bernie sanders and elizabeth warren who seem to kind of agree with donald trump on trade you know the 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 populism goes so (laughs) so they're not you know if this was sort of if this was sort of the that uh Tony Blair Labor Party, the Brexit, the anti-Brexit thing would be obvious, right? But Mm, when you throw the more populist left in, it, you know, it it makes things more, you know, yeah, it makes things more complicated. Yeah, that's right. And so, so to finish that story, so, uh, so the Labor Party, kind of the natural opposition party, is not offering a clear choice on the main question that everybody's going to go, everyone's going to go to the polls, and what they really want to be voting on is Brexit. But by proxy, they're going to be voting for parties. Now, there is another kind of center-left party called the Liberal Democrats, and they have gone out with a platform that basically a vote for us is a vote to stay, is a vote to shut down Brexit. And so they're likely to be getting a lot of the votes of people who would vote for Labour if Labour would take that position, but instead they're going to vote for Lib Dems because they are taking that position. And what Can't it means— the Queen just fix this? Can't uh, the Queen well, do something? Well, hmm. Can't you just say, look, I haven't flexed my muscles in forever. <laughs> I'm doing something good for England and the world. I'm just going to make a decision. <sighs> she can, she can like. I'm not sure which way she would vote. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There's a. Uh, you think this... Prince Charles just looks at her and goes, when will you die? When? Well, okay. So, you know, we could lose a lot of time talking about uh, the British royal family. You know, some speculate that when uh, he married Camilla, the deal was that he agreed to the queen that he, she, he would not become king. That and, he then would, she, and, she, and she just said, and God just said, okay, you made the deal. I'll let you live forever. <laughs> well, no, that he... Longevity, that it, you can't account for longevity. That doesn't I mean... Yeah, well, that's true too. But, but, but that he would defer to Will, to his son, William, was the... Ah. I, mean, I, I mean, I think probably in the UK, you can bet on anything. I'm sure you can put money on a bet, like who's going to be the next... Uh, the next sovereign is it going to be? You know, probably, probably they can get like three to one on Charles, and maybe like maybe three or four to one on William, and then you know, crazy odds like fifteen to one on you know, I don't know who else is there. Meghan Markle. Meghan, yeah, poor Meghan. Apparently, they're having relationship difficulties. I don't spend a lot of time reading the tabloids in this country, but yeah, she's having a hard time adapting. Apparently, yeah. I mean, the media can be life. so cruel. Royalty can be so cruel. A tough life. Mm. I, I've always thought that. that's why I'm not royalty. Good call. Well, you know, <clears throat> I think I think what it is, especially in a country like the United Kingdom, it's about finding finding the sweet spot in among the elite. 
Like I think to be like a member of the royal family in the line of succession, yeah, that's that's a hard life. But you know, to be a duke, oh yeah, that would be great. I think you you get all the perks, but nobody really knows who you are. But you still get to go to all the fancy parties, and you still get kind of like to be seated in a certain order. You know, you get you get access to things like Wimbledon and crap like that. Like you get to you get to be in a privileged. I think position. a line of succession couldn't be that bad. It's stressful, maybe, but I still think it's probably. I'd still, I, I, I you know, I'd still be into it. I think. So I wouldn't turn it down. See, we're, we've we've clearly refilled our tanks for yeah. Here we go. You know, tank is erudite conversation. Because exactly. Look at this. Um, Let's talk about the truth. Unless you want to talk about you running for president, because everybody else is jumping in. Yeah. What is what that? Yeah, we uh, Duval Patrick from Massachusetts is is is. Is announced his candidacy today, and I suppose Michael I su- Bloomberg. I suppose what part of it is, and you know, honestly, uh, before Trump became president, probably what you know, I, I, and, and I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but assuming that he never intended to actually win, um, I think that the incentive for so many people is, you know, if you've got just a bit of a financial capital and organizational capital, running for president is maybe one of the like the most cost-effective, lucrative ways of becoming, you know, someone with influence and popularity and followers. Yeah, it's just brand brand building. Like, you get to run for the leadership of the free world, um, and all you have to do is file some papers and meet some criteria, and you're you're in the big show. It's crazy. I think also the way the Democratic Party is situated right now, there's, there's two strong candidates with followings and money representing the, the 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 left you know the clear left of far the, you know the left end of the of the country you know Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren so then when you look at who's going to be the center which generally like the democrats who have won like Clinton Obama and recently have been more from the center they haven't been the hard left mm. so it's going to come down to probably a showdown between the progressive candidate and the cent- and the more center center candidate so Joe Biden right now looks does not look great. It, he, I'm not saying he looks awful, but he doesn't look. He's, he, he ain't the Joe of a couple years ago. He's he's not that impressive. I think is. Yeah, I mean, he still has name recognition. Still does well in national polls, but he doesn't have a ton of money compared to like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. And I think people are thinking, well, both for ambition and also for the country. I, I think a lot of people, and I'm inclined to agree with this. I think a lot of people think that if it comes down to three states. A far left candidate, a three or four states like it did last time, a far left candidate is not going to serve the Democrats well in those states. Somebody a little more middle of the road, left, center left is going to, is going to do better. No, the, the, the leftist pushback to that would be a lot of the people Trump got, even though they're cultural conservatives, they're, they're, they're not economic conservatives. Their, their economics are populist too. So, mm. I mean, that, I mean, it's just sort of a dual argument, but I think people think, look, the best way to be Trump is, from a sort of more left center left than far left. And so everybody thinks that lane is still open. I mean, which they may be right. I mean, like who, who, I mean, also, especially like, let's say Iowa, let's say Joe Biden just shits the bed in Iowa, comes in like fourth or something, Mm. right. Mm. Or fifth. And then like, people are going to make, whoa, you know, that's going to, I mean, then it's going to seem wide open. That's why like Deval Patrick, he's in Massachusetts. He's got that New Hampshire media market. He thinks I could make a strong start. And then you got the black voters in South Carolina and and then Bloomberg thinks, well, I can sit it out until Super Tuesday because they got so much money. I can buy it. Like, 
which he could probably if he if he got votes at the same price he got them for New York, he could he could get enough votes that he'd still have like half his fortune. I guess, I guess so again this is you know why I suppose uh US presidential politics, you know, for anyone who's vaguely interested in politics around the world makes such good TV, just makes ah. such good TV because one like anybody can get in the biggest show on earth basically. Marianne Williamson, right? And 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 what yeah, you don't have to do your time in, in as a backbencher to get in a place in parliament. Uh, oh, so eventually like, you could. Yeah. Get the, yeah. I mean, in Canada, in the United Kingdom, I mean, you know, Justin Trudeau was an aberration because of his family name. But, you know, for most and people, face. for most and people face now, too, he's an aberration yeah, well, in some other oh ways. Yeah. Oh, my God. Let's not go there. Um we're gonna get completely off the rails. But for most people, like, like, you want to admit that you've worn blackface? <laughs> like, 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 take take Boris Johnson here in the UK, right? I mean, so he, this man is a career politician. Yeah, right. I mean, I was mayor of London. I've been MP. Like, you, you've got to put your life into uh, a, a a competitive fight against you know other political animals for you know getting on the influential committees. Um, you know, getting yourself elected in your local riding again and again and again. I mean, you've got to really build a profile and you've got to build enough uh, allies within sort of the party to vote for you when the leadership bid comes up within the party. And you've got all of these political animals who are like, you know, who is this upstart? I'm not going to let him take the reins. There's a long list of people who have done their time that that deserve you know my vote for party leadership before we get to to that person and so for for someone who you know kind of is is like loves the idea of being the leader but isn't really interested in the life in the political life you're never going to get there uh whereas in the united states you can one so you don't have to face that personal test i can have i can have a, a life making you know in, in trump's case like tens of thousands of dollars in business <laughs> <laughs> Right. Tens of thousands. And, and, and then run for president, you know, kind of when I'm done that and want to do the other thing. But two, like the Bloomberg example or, or even the Pete Buttigieg example, I don't have to I don't have to demonstrate that I'm competitive in this big country of ours. I have to demonstrate that I'm competitive in the first little mini contest. And then there's like the big mo. Right. I got the big mo. And like suddenly you're suddenly you're relevant because 10,000 people in, in, you know, in one little fragment of the whole population Decided that yeah, you overwhelmed us enough that we're willing to to vote for you, and so I'm electable suddenly. Wait, so it's it- also interesting about our system too. <laughs> is after you become president, like you fill out the government, you're not bound to career politicians. Like you, you fill out your whole cabinet. You don't have to pick like member other uh, MPs. You know, like you can pick people from all over any sector in the country. So it it is an interesting. Our system is it's, interesting. It's fascinating. Like that. It really is fascinating because you do yeah. have a lot of options. Like mm-hmm. once you become president, to to the executive has a lot of latitude of how they fill the executive branch and all these sort of different institutions. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, again, we're off on. I don't know. Let's talk like a, about the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so I say in this article, "Truth and Consequences" by Sophia. Rosenfeld. So who, give me the background. So like you said me, you basically I get this message from you that says, Chris, you have to read this article because I want us to grapple with it. So I could go hang out there. She's at Penn. I might just go. I, I'm going to have to be down Center City today. I'm going to just knock on her door and say, hey, we did a podcast on your, um, on your, on your article. So what, so, what seized you about it? Uh, well, I, I get this journal called the hedgehog review and comes out of the university of virginia the center for the critical study of culture or something and it's an interdisciplinary journal 
so they always have, they always take a big idea and get a bunch of different thinkers from different disciplines to kind of think about it. And this was about, you know, sort of truth and re- it was called reality and its alternatives. So this is the first article and she basically is arguing that, all right, here we are. She also wrote a book that I'm going to check out. It's called Democracy and Truth, a Short History. So she argues that, look, we've got this sort of, we're in this post-truth culture. That's what we're hearing. And we've got this, this issue where it's not just we're having disputes about how to interpret facts, but we can't even get on a common set of facts that, you know, we've talked about this. We've covered this ground a lot on the podcast mm. that, you know, we're in this place where, you know, we seem to be in a situation where the social media and other technological advances have have made us sort of autonomous interpreters of information, right? You know, the, the, each person has their kind of private judgment. At the same time, we're more siloed and sort of self selected sort of communities yeah so we're, we're in more, our own echo chambers yeah we're not we're not just left up to our, to to, de- to determine things we also can't collaborate very well to come to the make those judgments and she's arguing this is not a new problem that maybe it seems like new but really you know and she says the punditry you know looks at not just modern tech you know late modern technology but also certain deregulation in places like the united states with media and things she's like but now it's actually inherent in the kind of liberal democratic history itself. And you've always had this sort of tension between, uh, you know, the, the elites who are kind of and, shaping truth and then, right. And, and the, the populist, of, you know, and, and like, the sort do, of, do we receive this truth or should we also have some say in shaping this truth? And yeah. And she's what she argues that, you know, it, it's when it, it when it ideally it, it was supposed to work with sort of, you know, the experts are not just thermostat, you know, they were also, taking the temperature like a thermometer but th- you know eventually she argues this this gave way to more and more thermostat which then leads the people to want to set the thermostat right so in, and then eventually you have all these tensions so she thinks like when you look at there's these populist arguments when andrew jackson got elected president you know in the 19th century so she thinks this is not should you know the degree may be new with certain technological advances but the the, the this reality of of feeling like you know or, the, or at least the the, all the ingredients were there for for the for this sort of dish to be to be the, made you know for long before we were arguing about Facebook right right kind of this point that <clears throat> she makes in the in the um, article that like this isn't the first time that populists have stood up and claimed to you know kind of to speak for for real people and and their sense of of the world which you know the elites are are disconnected from. And and so they're not hearing, they're not listening, they're not they're not occupying the same reality that uh, that that we are occupying. I think so. That I mean, that's got to be right. That this is in some ways part of the um, part of the the sort of fundamental tension, maybe around 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 democracy. That you know, and 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 you know, we call it representative democracy in part because of that tension, right? Like most of us, like you know, I've got to tend the fields. Uh, I've got to actually like create some productive in society. I don't have time to, you know, spend a lot of time forming a kind of a, 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 a public knowledge about what are the risks, what are the opportunities, what are the consequences of doing policy A versus policy B. So we're going to delegate that to you as a class of people who are going to kind of work on that problem. And, Don't and, you think this is this is where like the Brexit referendum is a cop out? Because what could oh, well, what so, could require more research than that? <laughs> Well, so that's, you know, it's kind of one of the, I guess, you know, and, and we've, we've all experienced this in, you know, so many examples. Like I think of, I think of, um, you know, a very simple example 
you know, Basecamp Toronto, Basecamp London, the series of global gatherings that, that you and I are a part of. And you get a hundred people together and you say, okay, we're going to get together in a very special way. And here are the, here are the aspects that make how we get together special and different. And, and you can say that you can live that you can be consistent with that. And still a lot of people, when it comes to a moment, they're, they're not going to operate that way. Right. And so, you know, representative democracy. I mean, we kind of, we get taught it in civics class when we were kids, all this stuff. But when it comes to, you know, a moment, we're like, well, we had a referendum and the people's voice was heard and that should take priority. We, and we, we, we just forget that we had agreed at some point in the past that the way that we're going to do this is we're going to delegate some of these big decisions to other people. And, and, and we as a population, we are, you know, every four or five years, going to choose our delegates, but then we're going to leave it to them to sort this stuff out. Um, and, 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 you know, in moments of, I guess, heightened stress or consequence, we kind of for, forget to be bound by some of the, the choices that we've made about, about how we're going to do things. But, but there, I think it is also true that in choosing to, to have democracy function through representatives, we, we set up this tension to you know to kind of play itself out from from time to time in in terms of there is this class of people who are going to you know not only one you know because they've spent more time and energy maybe have more let's say sophisticated views of what's going on in the world and what what role sort of the public should play but also that though that group of people are going to kind of you know, whether by intention or not, they're going to kind of start to go off in their own sphere. They're going to start having their own language for things. They're going to have start having their own self-interest for things. And it's going to create distance from the people whom they represent. And whatever their best intentions are, it's just going to happen. It's a structural thing that there's going to be a divergence. And so that's part of this this tension, too. Yeah, and she's, you know, it's it's interesting. She She's not unsympathetic to this populist concern about the, we've talked about this before, the monopolization of, of, of truth by a certain sphere in public life. But her, she makes this great point, though, that she says, you know, at its best, the insistence on the perceptions of ordinary folk can be a vital corrective to expert arrogance and domination. But as should be apparent, when populist rhetoric starts to determine how politics is practiced, the risk becomes, again, not just bad policy. In this case of the simplistic, I keep my neighbors out by building a wall in my backyard so the nation should do the same variety. Ironically, the threat emerges that an equally undemocratic, anti-pluralistic politics will prevail, this time targeting individuals and groups associated with expertise and technocracy and pushing their dissenting voices and often those of their more marginal allies, such as immigrants, out of any broad, any broader conversation. And then she's, you know, the path will be clear for a demagogue leader to come to the fore. Mm-hmm. Someone who claims to speak for those real people and their sense of the world better than anyone else can. Gosh, I've never seen that happen in recent years. <laughs> so <clears throat> where I disagree with how she frames mm, the challenge of the now, the political challenge of the now, is um, – so she she's worried about the the collapse of a kind of shared you know at the risk of using her big words like epistemic frame right like a shared yeah. there there needs to be for democracy to function needs to be kind of at least a shared i don't know foundation of how we get to truth almost like we need we need shared standards of what counts as legitimate um fact and 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 
and evidence toward what's true so that we can have a conversation and have compromise because, oh, you made a good point. And I have to accept that because we've all agreed that if you, if a point kind of originates in this way, comes from that sort of fact base and evidence or procedure, then that's a, a valid point. So I have to concede that you've brought that. Um, and so she's, she's worried about kind of the collapse of this, of this shared evidence base and, and, and therefore the collapse of truth. <sighs> I think of it more as, I, I think the problem is that we've got too much truth in society, that that what has really happened is not so much the collapse of the evidence base uh, of like a shared evidence base or something. But what has really happened is uh, a, a, a collapse of the search for uh, complex truths. And, and, and I think what has what has really collapsed uh, and uh, maybe we never really, you know, yet as a democratic experiment have fully developed it is um, – an, an interest in complex truths. I think that what happened is we we somewhere along the way learned that the simple truth is the best one. And and um, do you think that yeah. that she argues? I don't know that she argues that we all need this common epistemic frame. I think she thinks we need. I think she's actually agreeing with. It. I think she's saying we need to keep in the struggle for the search for common truth or public. Or, or the, she's like, why? This is why we should keep the idea of serviceable truth alive. Hmm. That like that I think she thinks we're either tempted to sort of just say either like she even says that, that you know, fight or we could say that uh, fights over truth claims claims are simply the price we have to pay for living in a democracy. Or maybe we'd rather say good riddance to the whole thing. After all, democracy can sometimes seem like a clever way to paper over various forms of exclusion, domination and justice. Truth can possibly be seen as just another one of its pernicious mythologies, especially in this era of entrenched inequality. Hmm. It's, so you can sort of do this kind of, you know, critical theory. But I, I think she's arguing that it's the sort of the thing that keeps us in the collective search that we need. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, and I, I talk about this in, um, in, in my TED talk that I feel like what this moment presents us with is a choice of what we want our relationship with truth to be going forward. Yeah. And and it seems to me that there's a very there's there's like a stark and historic choice to be made here. And and the one option is just to, you know, kind of like Nietzsche did with God, um, we declare that truth is dead. You know, truth is dead. Uh, the whole notion that there's some kind of truth that we can share is, uh, you know, never coming back. And instead, let's start searching for a replacement source of sincerity. Um, and, and, you know, I argue that a lot of us are already What's made so that. about that parable of the madman, too, when Nietzsche, when the madman's coming, telling people that God is dead. There are bourgeois people that already don't believe in God. He's telling you don't understand what a big effing deal this is. Like, the man, like, <laughs> like he's like, no, you can't just be a bourgeois. Like if this is eclipsed, like we drank up the ocean. Like this is like right. You gotta I mean, like follow through all the implications. Of yeah, this. yeah. I, I think he thinks like that, that people don't get it. The <laughs> the bourgeois kind of oh the guy is dead. Sort of like if you can be bourgeois and passe about it, then you don't understand what we what what we're dealing with. Yeah. So yeah. So you know the and and to argue that truth is dead. Is basically to say that you know. So let's say you know if if there is no sincerity and truth, then you know I, I think a lot of people now, instead of asking what's true, uh, we are looking for sincerity in our groups, right? We buy what our group is buying. We believe what our group believes, and so 
Um, you know, and, and, and ironically, what I think a lot of people are finding is that the, you know, the truths or the beliefs that people consume through their groups, like through their social reference groups, they actually seem more authentic than the truths that they possessed before that, you know, came to us in the age of mass media and kind of when you were told that this is what's, you know, this is the dominant message. And so everybody kind of just subscribes to it. Like, you know, globalization is a good thing in the 90s. Like that was the truth. And it came to people um, through kind of a mass media channel versus, you know, some of the truths that we own today that come to us through these so small social groups that we're a part of. But if truth is dead, then, you know, she's right. Then democracy is a sham. And right. even more, I mean, she points this out. And we've talked about this, like with Harry Frankfurt's book on truth. If truth is dead, like human development's not possible in a meaningful way because part of human development is like when I learn that there's truths outside of me, there's a world outside of me, it doesn't conform to my will. That's how I learn decency. Like that, that right. every right. everything in front of me is not just an object for my control, but they're really subjects, and I can't go I it. I have to go I thou. Right. And like you have to learn that you're circumscribed and have limits and things. Like that. So I mean, yeah. I think that yeah. Whereas if truth is dead. And I encounter that situation, then I just I just need to find a bigger group of people who think like I do. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. that we can so we can hit you. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it becomes yeah. I mean, it's mm. it's it, this becomes a problem from raising the child to raising the tribe. Right, right. And so yeah, without without some kind of commitment to the possibility of a truth, which you know where where truth equals the reality that is bigger than myself. Without some kind of commitment to that, <laughs> then democracy really is just. You know, an occasional contest to see who gets to dominate the other for a period of time. And that doesn't mean we need we need to have the same all the same epistemic frameworks. And this is where I think like Right. If you don't like so for instance, like we don't there's a great book, Ethics After Babel, the Jeffrey Stout, the great uh Princeton professor of religion and political theorist. He argues he talks about this this in the intro of the book, he talks about debates over ethics in a sort of postmodern world. He said, you know, you have your C. S. Lewis's of the world that say unless there's something like the Tao, right, the sort of natural law, then there can't be uh you, you know, there can't be universal ethics or there can't be ethics, right? Mm. Stanley Harawas, a Christian sort of po you know, theologian, mm. ethicist and late modernity postmodernity slash postmodernity argues that no, 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 that's impossible. There can only be Muslim ethics or Jewish ethics or feminist ethics or Christian ethics. Y you know, th there is no absolute. There's just, there's incommensurable stories and ethics mm. is about stories. Mm. And Stout says, no, I mean, what you, we, we know, even if we couldn't, even we can't, we might not be able to find this sort of natural law. And even if we could find it, it it'd be contextualized in particular traditions, mm. but they, these tribes can't be incommensurable because we know we're talking about ethics, right? Right. Like, so, the, so Stout's point is the pragmatist is like, we don't have to, we don't have to have a theory of how to translate to translate, right? Like we, sometimes we don't have theories of things that we can do. And so I think like we don't need to, to the, to get to the idea that we can have shared truths in, in, in inquiry. We don't necessarily need the corresponding universal theory of how we do it all the time. Yeah. So if I can dumb that down into language that I can understand, because most of that was over Please my head. Please do. <laughs> Please do. But, but I think, I think that, so I, I think what you're talking about is, um, is, uh, doubt versus certainty. Okay. And, and, and there's this interesting question of what do we need to get to, you know, a healthy, serviceable truth for a democracy. And, and the kind of the naive argument might be, well, obviously we need certainty, right? So we need, as you say, a, an epistemic frame. So we all agree that this is sort of where we start from. And there's kind of rules of evidence that we build up from that same framework so that we can get to certainty together. And we all have to acknowledge that, aha, the light goes on. Whereas I think more interesting and, 
and I just think more right is that actually um, truth depends upon doubt. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, 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 and the need and the healthy functioning democracy really depends upon, you know, my ability to um, and, and your openness to having doubts that I can give you doubt and you can give me doubt. Absolutely. Right? So, so like so I come at the, you know, the whole universal problems of the very economic worldview, for example. And you come at it with a, a very spiritual view, you know, and they're just really different lenses on reality. But but when you talk about things from your perspective, it makes me realize that, wow, you know, I have a lens that doesn't even acknowledge the reality of some of the things that are really yeah, yeah, important can, to we you. We can both so, be describing a reality that's outside of us. Right. And with so, different takes. And yeah. so there's a kind of, there's a humility around like, I don't know if we can ever, you know, like a math problem solve this equation because it's, it's like, it's apples and oranges or it's like, it's, it's apples and, you know, I don't know. They're just so different, but I recognize that there's nonetheless an important piece of truth or reality in where you're coming from. And so what we need is just a, a messy process of kind of allowing these different aspects yeah. of reality to kind of play into one another. Right. So, yeah. so, and I think just to go on my rant, I think that this is maybe where there is, you know, if in, in this latest recurrence of populism, maybe this is the roots of where it has come from. If you look at the last 25 years, so, you know, the, the the short version, very narrow-eyed view of, of, of history, there has been so much kind of certainty, so much alignment in, you know, academics, in in politics, in in business, um, you know, even in the even in like trade unionism around um how to look at the world, a kind of technocratic view towards uh economic growth through trade and open borders and, 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 uh, you know, so much sense of mm, priority to, uh, economic arguments that it became very difficult to express arguments about, you know, I don't know, cultural identity, um, personal identity, um, like stability, uh, risk. It was all, it, 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 all, so many of, so many views became marginalized. Um, and, and I think that this gets to the point of, you know, did the truth sort of become a bit too hegemonic? Did, did sort of the, the, the ordering of society become a bit too certain so that we were kind of, you know, and, and, and an elite class that is driving things was almost primed for a reaction from people who felt like there's a lot of my reality that isn't being described here, that isn't being yeah. given enough weight in, in the conversation and and then as soon as somebody comes up and 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 provides a valid outlet for that, then this is the result that we end up with. Yeah, I, mean, I, go, I go back to this book I've quoted a few times by Leslie Newbegin about about epistemology. It's called Proper Confidence. And he says his first chapter is faith is the way to knowledge. The second chapter is doubt is the way to the truth, mm-hmm. and the third chapter is certainty is the way to nihilism. Because he says you know mm-hmm. you have to certainty is the way to nihilism. To yeah. get knowledge, you have to have faith. You believe that the teachers, the traditions, and stuff that the professors that you, you have a certain degree of faith that you lend them that they're passing things on. But to know that's true, you have to doubt, you have to be able to sort it through. And so anybody that any, there's always this interplay between faith and doubt, whether you're religious, irreligious, whatever to, there's a fiduciary framework to kind of all knowing. 
and you, and to to get to the truth, you have to be able to like believe and yet doubt, believe and yet doubt. But if if the ground is certainty, right? Like mm. if that's what we require, then it leads to nihilism because there's no place pa- outside of this sort of messy interplay of faith and doubt to get to something like the truth. So I, th- I think where if this is our analysis that there's there's kind of by the way Siri just heard me say that on my iPad and oh did it buy you a she book she didn't get that <laughs> neither my, none of the listeners might have gotten it either so I think I so I I think there's something kind of fundamental here about um we need to we society we need to create more healthy space for doubt yeah and there is so much certainty um we are all so certain in our truths and that that is toxic to you know a, a meaningful democracy where we you know we 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 struggle towards an unattainable complex truth together and if, if that analysis is right if if like you know we're, we're we're suffering a crisis not of truth but of doubt like doubt is in crisis then what we're going through right now isn't just a rough patch like it's not something that automatically self-corrects I think that, you know, just like, just like kind of government steps in and says, you know, like this industry is a natural monopoly. And so if we want to have competition, we're going to have to break up these monopolies and encourage them to compete with one another. I I feel like uh, the manufacture of certainty is, is similarly one of these things where if, if we don't step in, we society with a capital W, um, and actively try to manufacture doubt. It, it's it's not going to reappear on its own. Um, and and in my TED talk, I talk about I, I talk about as an analogy the separation of powers because everybody kind of gets that idea that you know in in a democracy, in order to have sort of healthy government, you need to separate the powers, legislative, executive, judiciary, so that no one authority gets to say what is right. That we only know what is right, sort of as the outcome of their messy interaction. And I think we've got a similar problem with our truths and and. I talk about the separation of proofs, right? You know, I might have an economic lens on what's real. You've got a spiritual lens on what's real. But what we need is, uh, you know, a society where no one perspective gets to say what is true. So that we can only say what is true when different perspectives kind of have to have this messy interaction with one another. And, you know, and what are these proofs? Well, you know, the academy, journalism, you know, Wikipedia, um, you know, religion. I think there are a lot of them. I don't know if anybody has ever kind of like made up the list of what are the engines of truth making in society. But if you look at those engines, there are there are some kind of worrying trends, right? Like one of them is the monetization of everything, right? Like there's a, money has a lot of influence of over what journalists report. Uh, money has more and more influence over what academics research. Um, in some countries about, about what pol- what positions politicians take. And so these these engines that, that should be very separate projects of trying to kind of argue for what is real and what is important, they start to they start to kind of cluster closer together. You know, and, and just as you know, when separation of powers fails, that's when that's when the president that we elect becomes a tyrant over us. When when this separation of proofs fails, you know, that's when kind of doubt disappears, when we become really certain and, and whatever whatever truths we hold, they become tyrants over us. They become so strong that we just can't let them go. And I think that that, you know, that's, that for me is, is, is maybe the big fundamental project is we got to look structurally at how do we become a more doubtful society. 
I think we might have a crisis both of faith and doubt because I think mm. I think within like places where you're exercising faith to gain knowledge, we need more doubt, but also we need more faith that institutions are are <laughs> repositories of truth in the journey. Like, because there's what, what, also, what what do you mean by faith? Because you know there, you you come at it with such a I, I broad. Think there's, there's I think people are have such a lack of belief in institutions mm. and things. People are so okay. cynical, right? Right. Okay. And so there's a kind of there's a kind of Cynicism about institutions and traditions as being as being stewards mm. of truth and be able to critically sort through things. So, mm. so you need so you need that sort mm. of, when, when you're in the, the the sort of faith seeking knowledge context, you need more doubt, but also you you also need a collective sort of idea that that there's these there's these knowledge seeking communities that are actually not full of shit that are actually really trying to do something fallibly I- imperfectly but so i think that like we have this in, in some sense like we ha- we have this sort of cynicism a- about the 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 whole kind of faith doubt mm. uh cycle that, that leads to a sort of it does lead to a kind of nihil- nihilism or, or kind of cynicism do you need sort of this you need this sort of like critical faith in the in communities of knowledge right that that you know it actually makes it possible to doubt with good faith while ex- while being a part of them. Mm, mm. That's really interesting because so that that opens a whole can of questions that I don't know the answers to, which is why it's so interesting. That's why I have to. I need to go knock on. <laughs> on uh, I need to go to knock on Sophia Rose. We, we we both got to. We, we both have to knock on Feld. Sophia's door. Um, I really could but, do that. I'm I'm going down. I'm going to be right by Penn's today. I might just go knock on her door. You totally Hi, should, Sophia. How are you? Totally should. Um. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Maybe that's our ending point. We just pick it up next week. <laughs> Doubt, faith, well, so, knowledge, okay, certainty, so, the quest, the truth. So there's now there's kind of two dimensions, right? Um, because so you know, so one option is truth is dead, and I think in something like that's the easy choice, right? Because because if we if we, if we're too cynical to trust institutions, and 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 we're too wedded to our own truths to allow in doubt. Both of those seem very hard. But if truth is dead, then all I need to do is find my group. And there is this kind of... But nobody can tr- live that way, though. Because well, the second somebody says to someone outside the group, that's not fair. They've acknowledged that they, they're not really living that way. Sure, sure. But so where I was going to go is... So I think where we're going is... I mean, the alternative to a kind of, you know, Nietzschean declaration that truth is dead is uh to declare that to resurrect truth basically yeah right that 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 we need to resurrect truth and and what that involves is somehow um creating healthy space for doubt between you know the different sources of uh of our understanding of the world and also which which you've now clued me to as completely not think like just missed my awareness but you're totally right so creating doubt Healthy space for doubt and um, willing to take, you know, acts of faith in projects that 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 you know are on quests to make sense of the world. Whether it is the academic project, whether it is the um, religious spiritual project, whether it is the you know the bureaucratic project, whether it is Wikipedia. But we have to we have to be willing to to combat our cynicism with these with these acts of, of faith and ultimately, you know, through that somehow shift from, you know, hitting each other over the head with our little private truths 
to being more invested and more interested in building bigger truths together. That 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 I think is the kind of the task that 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 we're left with. And then the question is, you know, how do we how do we begin that task when there is, you know, right now so much certainty and so much cynicism. Um, you know, yeah, we're just kind of how do we get people away from seeing themselves as members of a tribe and more as pilgrims on a journey? Mm. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, you know, another question for Sophia. It, it's another question for Sophia. I would. I mean, we, we got. We don't have to answer all these questions, you know, in, in one pa- podcast. But my hypothesis would be, you know, kind of studying from history. Usually, usually the answer is in kind of the 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 swing of the pendulum back. You yeah. Know? So 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 much of these challenges have had to do with the kind of the dematerialization of our conversations, of the transfer of them into some kind of you know crude stripped of all context and nuanced digital speech acts at faceless one another's. And that's what we're responding to. And so it seems, I mean, the the first place that I would look to how do we begin those kernels of building faith and doubt would be in the exact opposite of that, which would be small group analog with one another conversations with, with, you know, people that were don't ordinarily group with, but actually willingly surrounding ourselves with the mix of voices that is missing from our echo chamber. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that that is easy, but I do think that that is the obvious place to start. Yeah, I know. I agree. And I think it has to be in, in the context of also not just like, I think you have to have a sense that, that, that the truth is in the whole. So like, mm-hmm. so that in the particulars, you're getting closer to the universal. Uh, you know, it, like you can't just do it like, oh, okay, mm. I'm going to just uh, look at my, my peer group and yeah, try to mix it up a little bit. You've got to have the sense that you actually need other people right. with different perspectives to get to the whole. Uh, otherwise, it'll just be an exercise and and sort of you know experimental sociology. Well, it's just just to, an exercise in validating why I'm right. I mean, all, yeah, this, all yeah, these people yeah. around me are completely clueless and flaky. Right. You have <laughs> to really believe that there's there's something there that mm. that. that mm. That, that in that particularity, yeah, is the only that, way that, you're that the, get to, that the, the only to the whole, yeah, that the only truth worth grasping is the one I can't grasp myself. Kind of, yeah. Kind Amen of to that. Yeah, that's good. But we should put that on a t-shirt. Exactly. By the way, we totally need that. We need like you know, we we have so many. T-shirt. That should be our Atlas project on the back of the t-shirt. The so only truth worth grasping is the one you can't grasp yourself. Grasp yourself. I yeah, love that. That's good. Write that down somewhere. But we 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 you know we should totally keep a log of like t-shirtable quotes. I like that. I'm into that. Um, I, I'm with you. So, you know, which, and, and maybe this is going to be another theme of, you know, most of our conversations, is what we've managed to do once more is validate your investment in a philosophy degree. Absolutely. And man, the world needs more philosophers. It seems yes. to me that that's, that's the conclusion once again. Yes. Because we need those philosophers to kind of awaken our search for a truth, which I, which I agree. I mean, if we're not motivated to uh, to complicate our own our own selves, then then why would we put ourselves through that through that exercise? Which is, you know, interestingly, so this was also the conclusion of my TED talk and and one of the reasons that I'm proud about about it is is I deliberately I I I, I was deliberately um not not cynical, but I, I wasn't sort of naive and Pollyannic. Yeah. Because I because I think if the choice in front of us is, you know, 
declare the truth is dead or resurrect truth. And I think that honestly, what we've chosen is uh, like the middle option, which is no, let's just hang out with our zombie truths. It's it's, it's the ostrich. Yeah, I'll put my head in the sand and maybe I pull it out in three days. It'll look different. Yeah. Like, you know, the truths that we possess, they no longer do what, what truth is meant to accomplish in society. Like it doesn't persuade anyone who, who doesn't want to be persuaded. And, and probably when I declare it, like I lose as many followers as I gain. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, so like my truths are completely broken and yet, and yet I'm holding on to them anyway, because I, you know, I just, I prefer to, you know, hit people who don't share my truths over the head with them than who actually make them better. And, and, and so fundamentally, there is this kind of personal choice that we need to make around, are, you know, are we satisfied with our weak truths? Are we satisfied with truths that are so weak that, you know, lies look just as legitimate to other people? Um, and, and if we are, well, then, you know, welcome to the world that you get as a result. Yeah. Um, and it will only get worse. Well, that's... Uh, we we got to end on a more positive note than that, dude. I- <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, I'm saying, yeah, I mean, I think, no, I think it's, I, I'm not, I'm not. I actually think, this. I actually think, and so, the, so here's my positive data point, you know, and you experienced it at like Basecamp Toronto, Basecamp London. Actually, I think that there is such a hunger to get together. Yeah. And to, to get into a small group, to get into like, to, to, like in simple words, to talk. <laughs> and listen with people in a, in a non-digital way um, where it's possible that I might say something and it's going to echo very differently than it usually does in my echo chamber. Like I'm going to hear back stuff I don't normally hear back. I think that you know, without having some big picture complex you know, philosophy about why I need to search for a higher truth, I think that there is a lot of hunger, just a yeah, feeling yeah, – and I, I want the, that, and 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 maybe it fails, and it's frustrating. But I when, think there's when, a when lot you connect, of connect. It. It's an exhilarating experience to connect to the truth through real human connection. Yeah. So oh, okay. So uh, we have to stop this, but it reminds me. So a couple of days ago, I listened to, I watched um, Mark Zuckerberg's this address that he gave at Georgetown University. Yeah, 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 yeah. A couple of weeks ago, or whenever it was. He's part of the Fifth Estate, or whatever. <laughs> It was it was awful, frankly. I'm like, surely you have enough money to hire like some, you know, hire Speed Scott, hire, hire Scott Kent Jones to come and like yeah, write I'm something. For, I'm for hire. Yeah, it was, I'll write. I'll write it for you. But what was what was so disappointing about his analysis was he was justifying the kind of the entire existence of Facebook as a vehicle to greater freedom of expression, bringing more voices into the conversation. Yeah, and you know what? And and that's great. But I think that what is abundantly obvious to everyone now is that that is not the connection that people want. That is not the connection that people want. And, 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 and that, you know, adding voices to the conversation so that we can all be publishers and we can all broadcast our messages, that is not in, in, in just some automatic way. That doesn't lead yeah. to social progress. What we need is to add complexity. What we actually need is to add more listening not just not just talk and 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 that and that this you know leader of this titanic platform had such a simplistic view of what we need of what kind of connectedness we need as society it was to me it was just so disappointing i'm like yeah, dude is, this was your that kind of that kind of like adding more voices that's at best a means it can't be an end i mean right like like it it like it's 
like it, it it's as an end into itself it could just be a cacophony right i mean right like what yeah. what are you adding voices to and and to what end mm-hmm. but we're asking laugh we're asking truth from a depth from zuckerberg we're asking a lot okay maybe that's fair i mean to, to be fair i've never met him so i have no neither have i i have no personal I've, I, 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 I i've met his sister um randy uh, and, and she's very interesting. She tells this joke, and I'm sure she's told it like a billion times that like she's the Zuckerberg who graduated from Harvard. Ha ha. ha. <laughs> that's well, you, you, funny. Yeah. that's actually really funny. But you know, it's got it's got to kind of be boring when you you told told the same joke like a, a billion. Is times she before. awkward? No, no, not at all. She's perfectly pleasant and interesting person. Um, but I think he's perfectly pleasant, just like Donald Trump's phone call. It was a perfect call. A perfect phone call. <laughs> my god good times good times well look i i mean i think that this has been a great sort of getting back into the saddle with we're one getting another. back in the, we believe and, in the truth and I, I think this is going to be like one of the one of the threads of our conversation that we're going to keep for the rest of the year at least coming back to yeah yeah because um you know making sense of how how are we going to be as a democratic society i think is you know it's 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 one of the big projects that we we do need to thoughtfully work on um you know i, I spent time again as as we all know like living in china for a number of years and there it's very different right the relationship with truth is very different uh because there is a monopoly on the proofs and and the academy and and the religion and you know all of the resources and databases and political voices and 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 the totality of speech does not complicate what is real is an alignment on what is real and and so you know we we are in a century now where where that is um that is a a major way of organizing society and in the 20th century there was this you know pretty pretty unexamined bias that um the democratic model was better and it's probably unexamined because it was just obviously wealthier. Like the democratic world was rich and the rest of the world was not and wanted those things and so trying to catch up politically as well as economically. In the 21st century, it is a far muddier outlook. Yeah, yeah. Right? It is a far muddier outlook. And so this question of is is um, is the kind of the mass collaborative project of you know forming – and, and I love Sophia's language around serviceable truths yeah. together. Um, can we figure out how to do that in a new technological moment with all of these new network effects um, and all of these new sort of concentrations of voice and power and, and openness and vulnerability to perspectives outside of our political community? Uh, can we figure out how to make this work and, and thrive? I mean, this is the question that you know we're going to be asking – our kids are going to be asking until we arrive at some yeah, or, settled sense, or, or if we don't, yes or no, <laughs> or if we don't keep asking, it, our kids won't be able to ask it. I think. Okay, like, I mean that's the thing. Yeah. It, it, there's no guarantee that it'll be. I mean, the really tragic thing is if people stop asking it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Hmm. Keep the question alive. Keep the question alive. Okay, well, we've certainly done a good job of keeping our questions alive because this this alive. now has has to have been our longest podcast. It is ever. our longest conversation. Okay, and so we'll that, be back hopefully next week, folks. So we will. We will keep tuning in. All right. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. 
If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us. <laughs>